All right, so hello everyone and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Lizer, I'm a data scientist at IWACA, and I'm your host. So today we've got Samuel Cohen. Samuel first did a bachelor in mathematics at Imperial College London, and then did a master in statistical science at the University of Oxford. After that, he did a PhD at UCL and is actually currently finishing this PhD. And on top of this, he is also a research scientist at Facebook AI Research. So Samuel, I'm so excited to have you here with me today. How are you? Very good. Thanks for the intro. So first of all, while you're still doing your bachelor in mathematics, you start to get interested in AI. So can you tell me a bit more? How does this happen? How do you get into the field, basically? Yeah, of course. So in my first year, I was looking for some experience, some practical experience in order to apply the kind of things that I've learned, the theoretical things I've learned during my bachelor's in maths. And I found an experience in data science. And the CEO of the startup told me about machine learning. The following year, so basically in summer between my second and third year, I started looking for machine learning experience. And actually, the CEO of the startup recommended me to one of the biggest malware detection companies called Checkpoints. And I joined the company for a summer internship. And there, I basically learned about most of the practical tools for doing machine learning, and we applied it to malware detection for Android devices. So you do your internship there during your bachelor, is that right? Yeah, in, in second year. And so tell me a bit more about this internship. You mentioned you did something around malware detection. How did you use AI to help the company solve a business problem? Of course. So I was in the Android team. And so basically the goal was to detect malware in Android applications. And the way we were basically doing it is that there was a team of different people implementing different algorithms. And we were basically aggregating the results from all these different algorithms that team members were building in order to improve prediction. And so I started an internship there. And so basically I started implementing new models, trying new algorithms, trying new data sources that the analysts had in order to try to improve the aggregated prediction. And so that's what I, I did for my summer. And at the end, we had like some increase in the performance. That was a pretty good learning experience. Can you explain a bit deeper what the problem was? So you had applications, some were malware, which means mm -hmm. could be harmful to the system or to the users, and others were not. And so your goal was to build an algorithm to detect some kind of bad applications? Is that summarizing well what you did? Exactly. So the idea is that in sort of malwares, you have some patterns. And so actually, if you have access to some data set of malwares, you can learn to detect the patterns of such and such types of malwares. And so we had a pretty large data set of applications. Some of them were malicious. Others were what we call basically clean. And based on this data set of both malwares and, and non-malwares, we were training algorithms in order to basically classify based on the information that we had on these applications, whether there was any sort of malicious pattern in the application. And so actually there, I also was working on another project, which was really literally about pattern detection. So we were trying to actually, we were going into the, the application graph and actually looking for malicious patterns there and uh, classifying the patterns there directly. So not, not only about trying to say there is a malware there or not, but also about what are the kind of 
usual patterns that lead to malicious behaviors. Okay, so not only saying this is a malware, this is a clean application, but also saying if this is a malware, this is a malware of type A or type B. Exactly, and where in the application is actually the, the weird pattern happening. Okay, okay, that's actually quite cool. And so something that I also think about, you start this internship without much experience in AI. So how do you manage to start building something like this? How do you start learning about AI essentially? Because it looks like quite complicated for a first project, at least for me. So how did you learn everything? Mm -hmm. so, so basically what happened is that when I, I got the internship, I started speaking to people in the company, in the data science team, and asking about like, what are the kind of algorithms that they use and so on. And then I started learning. So like for two, two months and a half before the, the internship, I bought some machine learning books and I started learning there. I then also did, did like some machine learning boot camps and like all sorts of things online in order to, to learn and trying to find some resources. So actually practic practical resources in order to learn the kind of things that I, I would have to, to use there. And then, like, basically, on the go, when I started the internship, I started also learning. Okay, makes sense. And so, in the end, what was the algorithm behind your product? Was it a deep learning model or something more simple? What, what did you build? <laughs> yeah, no, so at, at the time, we weren't really using deep learning. So it was more, mostly, like, just more, more classical, like, classification algorithms, decision trees, uh, boosting algorithms. So that's more of the kind of algorithm we were using. And it was like quite a long time ago, actually. It was, uh, I think, five, five years ago. So at the time, deep learning wasn't like used as much as, as it is today in industry. And what features do you put in this model? Is it like, because I'm guessing you don't just feed an app to your algorithm. You feed mm -hmm. some features, for example, I don't know, the user ID or things like that. So do you have some examples of things that you would use into this algorithm? What did you find interesting? Of course, so basically for, for applications, you have what we used to call static and dynamic information. And I was working on stat static information. To, to give an idea, there is something in Android application called the manifest, which controls what creden credentials the application has in the device. So basically like what things it can access, not access, whether it can, it can activate the microphone in the phone, all, all these kinds of things. And actually based on only this kind of information, you can already detect most of the malwares. So to give you an, uh, an example of a weird pattern, let's say for example, you have an application that's, that's a calculator. And now you see that in this application, it actually requests access to the microphone. Then you're like, Oh, that's that's kind of weird, weird pattern. Why, why would a calculator actually uh, ask permission to use the microphone? And so there, it's it's actually clear that there is there is a, a malicious behavior. Okay, I see. And and so you mentioned you managed to improve the algorithm of the company. Do you have more details on the outcome of this project and what you managed to achieve in the end? I basically built a model around the, the manifest. So actually, they were, weren't using it before my internship. And it improves the, the, the downstream prediction. And, and actually, so I, uh, I basically put in my code and then like some, some engineers in the team actually worked on putting it in production after, after the internship. Because obviously, like uh, in a two month and a half internship, you don't have time to actually port to production. And so someone there handled like uh, porting my code to, to production in, in the following months. And so the, the, the year after, I actually met with people from this team again. And they told me that actually the model I had developed there was, was in production and, and actually used day to day. That's very cool. That's very interesting. So you do your bachelor in mathematics. You 
do some internships to learn about AI, and then you decide to do a master in statistical science at Oxford. And at the end of this master, you then want to move to do a PhD. So when you start this master, what's in your mind? Why do you think about doing a PhD rather than going into academia, rather than going into industry, sorry? What's in your mind and why do you make this choice? Mm -hmm. So based on all these experiences, I also had like a, a research experience uh, between my third year and my master's at the, the National University of Singapore, where I was uh, basically doing some automatic speech, speech recognition research. I realized that really it's, it's actually important to, have, to like try to dive further into the details of how these algorithms work. And so that's why like the PhD route like sort of appeared more, more obvious. And so I decided to, to go into this journey. And uh, actually also the jobs that I was targeting were all aimed at PhDs. For example, if you want to be a research scientist today in one of these big companies like Facebook AI or Google DeepMind, and all these companies actually require a PhD these days. And so that's like sort of the jobs that I was targeting at the time. And that's also one of the main reasons why I decided to, to start a PhD. Okay, so you already knew that you wanted to work for those big companies in AI and those were required a PhD. So that's why you started a PhD. Is that right? I think that's one of the big reasons. And the other one is like also my curiosity. So I, I actually realized by, by doing some research uh, during, during my bachelor's, master's and so on, I realized that I was actually really interested in learning more about, 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 about all of these kind of things. And so that's also one of the reasons why I decided to do a PhD. I, I, I felt it was, a, it was a good fit. And also like things are getting like, I guess, more and more technical these days, even in big companies, like uh, sort of the AI problems are becoming harder and harder. And so I feel that having like a stronger set of like technical tools and uh, is, is actually pretty important. And I feel the other big thing that a PhD teaches you, and that's something that also some PhDs told me before I started mine, was that actually it teaches you how to learn fast about new, new things, new subjects, because basically all day you're like learning about new topics, uh, reading papers and so on, and it actually teaches you to understand things and learn learn faster. And so that's also one of, one of the things that motivated me to, to actually go into a PhD. One thing that I'm wondering, I'm obviously a data scientist in industry, and in industry, you want to optimize some business metrics, so make the company earn money or try to find as many leads for your company. But in research, what's your goal? How do you keep getting some interest? What's the goal of a research, essentially? Mm -hmm. So basically, you, you set your own goals uh, usually. Even even in actually even in large companies, you usually set set your own goals. You actually can set your research interests, and then and it, it can be very varied. Like during my PhD, I've explored like in many different fields, and and so basically, you, you go into the kind of things that interest you. In in my case, I was really interested in something called optimal transport. It has like a lot of applications. Recently, I've been working on. Reinforcement learning, imitation learning, all, all these things are completely different. I used to do some image generation. It's uh, it's very varied. So it's really about what, what kind of thing you're interested in and your own goals and also the goals that your super supervisor like usually sets. Even in, in industry, actually in, in research labs in industry, like the, the one I'm currently in, it's like you're actually very free to explore the kind of things that's that are that are interesting. Okay, so exploring things and then trying to publish papers on those topics. Yeah, definitely. The, the end goal is always to to publish some papers about your research in the in the top conferences that are that are recognized. And so the process is usually like you have some 
some idea, you're, you want to try it. Usually in like sort of simple examples where you can actually really understand whether the technique works, whether it works better than baselines and so on. And then you want to try it on like more complex problems. The dream is always to like port it to the real world, but like typically it's, it's, it's way harder. And, and then you validate your hypothesis. Again, you compare to baseline in like in interesting examples, and then you publish some papers, you submit them to conferences and you hope for them to, to get in. So one thing also that I'm wondering, lots of people are asking me this question. Do you actually need a master or even a PhD to get into AI? You mentioned earlier that to get those big jobs at Facebook, AI research or Google, you actually need a PhD. So what's your view on this? Do you actually need a master and or a PhD to get into the field or can you get into the field differently as well? What do you think? I, I feel a master, a master's yes, uh, definitely because also usually like bachelors in like data science or machine learning are there are not there aren't much of them. So actually, you usually need a master in order to learn about these kind of things. Uh, for a PhD, it, it depends on what kind of things you're interested in doing in your data science life. So basically, you sort of have like a big sp spectrum of like how technical your job is going to be. And depending on that, I guess it's possible to make a decision on whether you want to do a PhD or not. In my case, I was really interested in the research side of things. And so actually to like really dive into the problems, develop maybe more like, like uh, suitable solutions for the kind of problems that I'm interested in and so on. And, and there, like the, the research aspect is actually quite important. But are people who are more interested in like probably the engineering side of things, in which case maybe it's actually not necessary to, to, to do a PhD. And also for data scientist jobs, I know that there are a lot of jobs where actually like the research side of things is maybe less important and, and there maybe it's less important to do a PhD. So I think it really depends on, on what, what kind of jobs you're interested in like in, for, for, for your day-to-day. -day. Okay, I see. So if you want to go deep into research, a PhD could be a good idea, but if you want to do something more engineering, software engineering based or data science, then a master would do the job. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's my feeling. Okay, so you currently doing your PhD, but I mentioned that on top of this, you're also a research scientist at Facebook AI Research. So I want to focus on this experience First of all, can you give a brief intro of what Facebook AI research is and also what's the difference between Facebook AI research and the normal Facebook that we all know? Because I think those are two different things. Yeah, these things are very separated. So FAIR is basically a, a research lab uh, within, within Facebook or Meta, if, if I should call the, the new name of the company. And there, basically, we do a, a lot of fundamental research. So it, it's actually very separated from Facebook. We don't really like uh, even study like mostly Facebook data. And, and basically, I follow the, the interests that I, I've had during my PhD, actually. And yeah, it's really about fundamental research. I'm doing like actually, uh, again, optimal transport, the kind of things I, I mentioned earlier. I know it's been, it's been really, really interesting. I've been there for, for now a few months. I was originally a research intern. And I'm now uh, actually, I have a visiting position, which is going to last for, for a few more months. Okay, so it's still a research lab, so you're still doing research full-time, kind of what you are doing in your PhD, so you're not doing anything related to the Facebook app, like uh, Messenger or whatever. You're not trying to optimize things there. You're trying really to find new research topic in AI rather than in Facebook. 
Yeah, I think there may be some applied teams, but but actually I'm really in a more like fundamental research team where I actually don't access to any Facebook data. Okay, and we talk quite a lot about research. I'm kind of interested in your thinking process. Like there are so many different research topics that you could research on, so many things in AI, right? AI is a big field. So how do you get an idea of a research topic? At what point do you say, okay, this is a good idea. I'm going to start my research on this and I'm going to spend the next three, four, five months researching on this topic only. What's a good research idea and how do you get it? Yeah, so, so basically during my master's, I started doing something, which is that there is some website online called uh, The Archive, where basically everyone posts their, 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 their papers, even if they haven't yet been accepted to conferences or journals. And since my master's, every single morning, I actually go to this website and look at all the titles of the, the papers that were released that day in the areas that I'm interested in. I skim, I skim the abstracts of the papers with a title that, that I'm interested in. And I actually read some of the papers that actually are most interesting to me. And so I, I do that every day and it gives me just basically a, a sort of like rough view of like the field and all different like sort of subfields of, of, of the fields. And, and basically all my, I guess all my papers like during my PhD have usually been about, about like connecting fields, porting like some techniques into other fields. And, and having this like sort of rough view of what's going on is actually really important. And I, I feel it's also really important to be very curious and sort of to open your mind about like other sort of uh, areas and topics because it's actually really easy to then actually connect fields and find new ideas and then like develop new techniques in other fields based on techniques in, in the field you're originally interested in and, and then write some papers about that. Okay, so that's how you get your inspiration, I guess. But then the second part of the question is how do you define a good idea? How do you say, okay, that's a good idea? Does it have to be high impact or does it have to be easy to implement? What's the trade-off to kind of decide, okay, now I'm going to start my research on this? Yeah, so I've always been thinking of things as like a risk, sort of risk-reward trade-off. And basically you have more high impact ideas that are more risky and you have what we call close fruit ideas, which are usually less impactful. So the dream is always to have something that's close fruit, but highly uh, impactful. But it, it, these ideas, I feel, are pretty rare. And so early on in your PhD, you, you really want to have papers fast. And so the way to do that is to do more like close fruit papers, things that sort of ideas that are like sensible, that have some applications that you're like, pretty sure that they are going to work and actually I may improve some baselines and then you can get a paper out of it like pretty quickly in your PhD. So that's the kind of ideas I targeted like in my first year of, of my PhD. And then slowly I'm going more and more into like trying to find more high impact ideas, things that are more risky definitely, but that if they actually work, that can have more impact and then more citations and, and uh, all this business of like uh, this impact business. So that's, that's sort of how things have been going. Okay, that makes sense. So trying first trying to publish a paper by doing something maybe easier or that takes less time to implement because it's less risky. And then once you have a few papers down the line, you can already try to implement things that have more impact because you can take more risk. Essentially, you've already proved that you can write papers, that you're a good researcher, so you can maybe take more risk. 
That's exactly true. So you don't want to be in a position where you started your PhD, you tried some high risk sort of direction. And actually, like after like one year, one year and a half, actually, you don't get papers out of it because it was too too risky or too complicated. So that's sort of how how I, I saw things. So going back to Facebook AI research, can you give an example of a project or a research that you've that you're currently working on or that you've worked on in the past, what was the problem and how did you solve this problem in your research? Yeah, so definitely. So, so the project I, I've been leading for some time there now is in the area of imitation learning. So the problem there is you have some agents that live in some environment or some world, and you want to teach that agent to solve some task. Let's say, for example, learn, learning to walk. So... You have two settings. You have a setting where you can get some reward signals. So basically, like, for example, the agent is going like, to try some things in the environment. It's going to fall, for example, and it's going to get some rewards. And based on these rewards, you can teach it to learn to solve a task. That's a, an area called reinforcement learning. And in imitation learning, you actually don't get any reward from your environment. What you have is a demonstration. So for example, in my setting, you're going to have a video of an other agent in, in that same environment that solves some task. But again, working. Based on this demonstration, you want to be able to, to design some reward signals for your agents in order for it to learn to replicate the same task as the expert and the demonstration from this expert that it was pro provided with. So that's the setting we've been tackling. It's actually much more challenging from, from videos. And, uh, uh, and Can I just pause here just to give... Mm -hmm an illustration of the difference between reinforcement learning and imitation learning, because I'm not sure how familiar our listeners are with this, but in reinforcement learning, you would have, for example, a robot or whatever in an environment. And you mentioned this reward. So for example, if the goal is to grab an apple, you would give this robot a reward, let's say plus a hundred every time he grabs the apple, right? And you will give this robot a negative reward, so minus or zero, every time he doesn't grab the apple. Is that right? That's reinforcement learning. In imitation learning, what you're doing is instead of telling the robot, or oh, you get a reward once you grab the apple, you're telling the robot, look at this expert, look at what he is doing, and copy him. Do the same things as what he does. Is that right? That's the difference between reinforcement learning and imitation learning. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, and so now you're focusing on imitation learning, right? Yeah, and the setting is really from from video. So basically, you only have access to a video, and you want to, you really wanted to to replicate the task based on only this video, which is just a sequence of images, basically. Okay, and so can you give more details on what the problem is exactly? What kind of videos you're looking at, and why is your research new compared to other things? Yeah, so imitation learning from what we call states has been widely studied. So states basically means the joints. So you, you have access to the angular positions of the joints of some, some robots. And the problem is very low dimensional, so it makes it, it makes it easier. But actually, the setting of learning from videos directly, so actually the, the agent or robot, whatever way we call it, only sees images. It, it doesn't have any information on basically the the angular positions of the joints or, or anything like that. And you want to be able to, to teach it some tasks based on only image information. So that's a setting that's much more challenging. There are a lot of open challenges there and there aren't like a lot of strong baselines in, in that setting. 
And so we've been working on like some sort of practical solutions for, for these problems. We always try to make things like as easy as possible. So it's like reproducible and so on. And we propose some, some methods there that actually work very well in, in simulation. So we're working with uh, robots in simulation. So you have like, for example, some a robot called a cheetah, which sort of is like a, a, a kind of simplified cheetah in simulation. And we're trying it to we're trying to teach it to, to actually run. So that's like the, the settings there. It's much more challenging to make things work in, in the real world. And so that's definitely one, one of the goals we have down the line. But there are still a lot of, a lot of open challenges there. Okay. And so the cheetah would learn to walk by watching videos of a cheetah walking. Is that right? She's only watching videos. And thanks to your algorithm, you can use those videos to make rewards and then teach the cheetah how to work. Exactly. So maybe to give a bit more insight on how it actually works. So we're trying to design some reward signals that are based on these demonstrations in order to then train the agents by reinforcement learning. So as we, we talked about earlier, if you have access to some rewards in your environment, you can, you can teach the agent to, to solve some tasks based on these rewards. So now in imitation learning, we don't have any rewards from the environment, but we can design some imitation rewards based on the demonstration. And then we can use reinforcement learning techniques in order to train the, the agent. So the whole business here is how, given a sequence of images or video, how to design some reward signals for the agent in order to train it to solve the task. And that's basically the methods we, we developed there are fully about how to design these reward signals. Can you maybe give examples of how this could be useful in the real world in the future if this method would be able to be developed in industry, what would be some kind of real-world applications of imitation learning? And how could this impact the real world? Mm -hmm. Definitely, so there are still some challenges in order to port them to the real world. But the basic dream setting, in my opinion, is a case where you can, for example, have a human demonstrate to a robot to solve some task in a factory, for example. So let's say, you know, you have like... A, some robot that's going to pick some object and put it into a cartoon. And so the idea is maybe you can have some humans that actually does this task. You record a video of this human solving this task. Then you provide this video demonstration to the robot and train it to replicate this task based on only of the human actually doing that task. So that's basically, in my opinion, the dream reward setting. There are still a lot of challenges there. There is one of the things that we call the domain shift. So basically, for example, in the video, the human arm is not exactly the same as a robotic arm. So you need to be able to do some transfer here and, and to make the robots learning like robust to this domain shift. So that, that's, in my opinion, one of the biggest challenges there. And that's also one, one of the goals we have for, for the future. Okay, I see. So it could be used by Amazon, for example, to put book in a box, right? Thanks mm -hmm. to computational learning. But that would be in a few years, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Let's hope if your paper is yeah. successful. <laughs> so one last question about Facebook, and then we'll move on to another topic. But you're working with some of the best research scientists in the world, actually. Lots of people who want to be in your position. So having worked with them, what's a good research scientist, according to you? What skills do you need to have to be a good research scientist? So there are different kinds of scientists, but 
in, in my opinion, one of the very important things is, is curiosity. So basically, you need to be interested about like a lot of different fields. You need to read a lot of papers in order to understand what's the current basically stage of, of the fields in order to understand what's coming and, and basically where we should position ourselves. So curiosity is very important there in order to understand what are the things that are going to be done soon, whether like it's actually going to be done, done very soon and whether then it's a bad idea to do it because maybe like, you know, everyone is going to be onto this idea and you're going to get scooped. Or whether like, you know, like it's some other idea where actually people are not inter interested in and, and, you know, like maybe it won't get traction. And so I feel reading papers is uh, very important or like following actually the, what's going on in the field is very important there in order to, to, to manage to, to do that. All right. So be curious to do well in research. That would be your top one advice. Yeah. Cool. So I now want to move on to something quite different. I know that you're quite interested in AI and ethics. Beside your research, you're reading a lot about this. We've chatted on those topics quite a lot. So I want to dig a bit further into this. What is the issue at the moment in terms of AI and ethics? What do you think is going wrong, essentially? What's the problem? Yes, yeah, so there are different like topics in, in ethics that are actually qu quite important in AI. There is the topic of privacy, which has been like widely studied for the last, like uh, let's say, 10 years or, or more. And now there's another topic that's actually getting traction now, which is fairness. And that's one of the topics I'm mostly interested in these days. And I've been learning a lot about, about that. And so the issue there is that biases can be introduced in most of the stages of the machine learning pipeline or AI pipelines, both in academia and in, in, in industry. And they can, can have like some actually very bad downstream issues. So for example, let's say you are, you are a recruitment company and let's say the way you collected your data, there was some bias there. And basically then you train some AI algorithm in order to predict whether you should hire some person or not based on this biased data. The algorithm is itself going to be biased because it was trained on biased data and the, your downstream sort of recruitment metrics are going to be bad with respect to biases. So that's one of the ways that biases can be introduced, but they can also be introduced in many different other ways and at different stages of the pipeline when, for example, actually at prediction time. Yes, and, and, and so that's one of the big issues today. And academics have been onto this problem for, for some time now. And actually in industry, this is an, an issue that's, starting to also get traction. People are understanding that it's actually an, an issue. Regulations are coming. And, and yeah, it's, it's actually going to be a very important problem to solve for the, for the coming years. So just to make sure I understand well, by bias, you mean, for example, a company who hires, who would hire more men than women or more young people than old people or more white people than others. Is that... Is that what a bias is, being biased towards some kind of class or kind of person? So the, the main challenge these days in, in fairness is that it's actually even hard to define what's the right notion of fairness. One of the notions that's usually considered is called demographic parity. What it actually says is that, let's say you have a setting where you have some data and you have different features, let's say age, gender, numbers of years of study, topic of study, and so on. And you have some target attributes that you want to predict. For example, let's say whether you should hire the person. For the features that I, I discussed, you have some features that we call sensible or sensitive. So for example, it's going to be about ethnicity or gender. And 
you de define demographic parity to be that the expectation of the targets conditional on a sensitive attributes need to be independent of the attributes. So basically, in order to, to clarify what, what I just said, you need to have the same, for example, for a recruitment company, you need that the proportion of males and females that are hired conditional on the gender needs to be equal for, for males and females. So that's, that's one of the instantiations of that. So just to make sure I understand, well, they need to hire the same number of people conditional on gender, is that? Yeah, so or, or for example, let's say you want to predict salary. The expected salary for males and females need to be equal. So that's, that's, that's demographic parity. Okay, so you're using an algorithm which wants to predict the salary of someone. It's, this salary has to be the same whether the person is a man or a woman. Is that right? Yeah. The predicted outcome conditional on that sensitive attribute needs to be, needs to be equal. Okay, that makes sense. Naively, I would think if I'm a company and I don't want my algorithm to be biased, I would just not train my algorithm on male or female, right? I would remove the male-female feature from my algorithm. And this way, my algorithm doesn't know what's a man, what's a woman, and he's not going to be biased. Is, is that the right thinking or is there still a problem in this case? So actually, this is what most companies do today in order to reduce their chances of having some bias issue downstream. The problem is that it actually doesn't work in order to remove all the biases. The reason for that is that there are a lot of other attributes that are very correlated with, for example, gender. So I can take some example. In my undergraduate studies at, at Imperial, there was much more males than females in my class in mathematics. And so basically, based on your topic of, of study, for example, you can infer with some a good probability, what was the gender of the, per, of the person. And you actually have a lot of attributes. So it basically is going to raise your ten chances of actually being able to predict these sensitive attributes. So removing the column gender is actually definitely not solving the issue of gender bias in your data. So how can you solve this problem then? If you remove the future and it's still you still have a problem, you're still going to, I don't know, give higher salaries to men, then how can you solve the problem and make sure that your data set is not biased? Is it something that currently exists? Yeah, what do you think about this? Yeah, so this is a topic that has had a lot of traction in research in recent years. There are different ways of tackling it, and, and you can actually tackle it at also the different stages of the ML pipeline. So the first stage is, for example, you can try to have a better balanced data collection, but actually it doesn't always work because, for example, like sometimes the biases are actually societal, and actually even if you had like fair data collection strategy, it, it actually may not solve that problem. So you can also like try to actually pre-process the data in a way that's trying to achieve fairness. So actually you define some fairness metric, let's say demographic parity, and then there are techniques in order to rebalance the data set in order to make it less biased. So there are definitely some things there. You can also try to debias at later stages. Like for example, you train some model. You can actually like then bias the predictions in order to make the prediction less biased. So that's like one of the things that you can you can do. So really there are a lot of techniques, but these techniques ha haven't yet really been adopted much in, in industry. It's mostly like research. And I hope that in the coming years this is going to be become more of a reality in, in industry. Okay, that's actually very interesting. So thinking about regulations, because a lot of companies don't know if they are 
well, think they are doing something unbiased when it is it can actually be biased. So is there a fine or is there a regu regulation regarding this at the moment? Or is there nothing? Is this going to come in the future? What, what do you think about this? Because obviously this is something quite important, I guess. And it's something we definitely want to be more strict. But I don't think all companies will just say, okay, I want to have an unbiased data and I'm going to do it if there isn't any regulation. So what do you think about this? So basically, there are, there are two types of regulations that can come for, for fairness. I, I like to separate them into data regulations and outcome regulations. So what I mean by outcome regulations is whether, let's say you have some company that's, that has some process that's automatized with AI. We want to check whether the outcome and so basically the predictions of the model are going to be biased. For example, whether it's going to lead to biased recruitment or biased lending. So that's one of the ways you can quantify bias. And actually, this is already regulated. So you have something in the UK called the Equality Act. It was set, I think, in 2010. And it actually controls for, for, for that. Predicted attributes are having presets. It's like gender, ethnicity, and age, and other, other attributes. And basically, these outcome-based regulations exist. What's coming and what has basically has been drafted by the European Union and the UK in, in the last six months is regulations that are data-based. What I mean by that is that companies are going to have, in theory, if these regulations actually are implemented, companies using AI are going to have some data audits where the data sets are going to be analyzed and it's going to be checked for whether there are biases already in the data. If there are such biases, companies will be getting fines already at that stage, regardless of whether the outcome and whether like the application of the downstream algorithm are actually biased. Okay, I see. But that would be in the future, right? That's not currently done. Yeah, it's, it's being drafted. So the EU and the UK have, have drafted some AI acts that should be implemented in theory in the next months or, or, or years. And, and one of the big topics there is data bias and fairness. And so one thing also to help improve this data bias is synthetic data. I've read quite a lot about this before the interview. I'm doing my homework, as you can see. So what do you think about this? Can you touch a bit more on synthetic data and how can this help to solve this kind of bias problem? Yeah, of course. So synthetic data has been like extensively used in the past to solve the privacy problem which is one of the other like, big topics of AI ethics. Because with synthetic data, you can actually generate some new data that's close to the true data. But that's private in the sense that the samples that you generate are synthetic, so they aren't real. And through that, you actually can get some privacy guarantees. So there's a whole ecosystem of startups that was built around, around that. Now, with synthetic data, you can actually also constrain the syndicated data generation algorithm to respect some constraints. So for example, some fairness constraints. So that's one of the direction in research that has been followed in, in the last few months about trying to correct biases in the data by generating some synthetic data under constraints. So that's one of the ways to tackle the problem. So I read an article that in 2030, we might get more synthetic data than real data. And on one side, I think this is great because 
you're going to solve the bias problem and everyone is going to be equal. But on the other side, I think this is also quite scary because nowadays with deep learning algorithms and things like that, it's already very difficult to understand what the algorithm is doing. So I'm just thinking if we even don't understand the data, then our algorithms can become completely out of control. So what's your view on this? What do you think? I'm kind of scared by seeing that we're going to use more fake data than real data, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to have a good standard for how good the synthetic data is. So you can have actually some metrics that control how close the synthetic data is to the real data, whether you respect the same proportions and so on. And as long as you have guarantees on the synthetic data being close to the real data, I think this is less of a, of a problem. But actually, synthetic data is risky because if you don't control also for biases and all sorts of things, you can actually make the problem of fairness even worse. So there is a concept very well known in, in machine learning called mode collapse. It has other names, but one of the big names is mode collapse. And the idea in the synthetic data setting is that, let's say now you have some data set that is unbalanced. Now, for example, it's some lending data. And in that data, you have 25% female and 75% male. What can happen there is that the synthetic data generator is going to actually learn to generate more male, even more than the 75%, because it's going to implicitly allocate most of its resources to to male, male samples because they are more representative in the data. And actually with this issue, you can see a situation where it's going to generate instead of 75%, 25%, it's maybe going to generate 90%, 10% and, and, and basically increase the issue due to this mode collapse. So that's a very preponderant issue. And if people design synthetic data generators that are actually, and are not careful about these kind of issues, it can lead to actually very bad consequences but by increasing the biases that are already there. So to summarize what we talked about, even by removing a feature, your data might be biased. There are some techniques to unbias this data, but we need to be careful because if we start to generate bad data from this real data to try to make it unbiased, we can even make the problem worse. So I guess the goal is to find the right way to debias this data set. And yeah, we need to make sure we still understand this data in some way. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really important to always like control the quality of the data. So I think synthetic data has a lot of value and we'll probably have a lot of value in the coming years because it can at the same time give a way to both make the data private, which is a very important issue these days. You need to comply with GDPR, and synthetic data is a way to do that. Synthetic data also can be used, at least like synthetic data generation tools can actually also uh, be used in theory to debias the data by generating some new data that's synthetic and that's less biased. It's a very challenging problem. It's still like basically at, at its uh, very nascent, but that's like really the theory of how, how I'm seeing things. So in theory, you, you can actually, yes, you use synthetic data for both privacy and fairness, but it's going to be very important to have good metrics to control the quality and in order to not actually <laughs> increase the problem rather than solve it. Okay, that was very interesting. Thanks a lot. So now I want to move to the last part of the interview. Just two quick questions. The first one is, 
if you had one advice for people who want to get in data science or AI or research, what would be your advice? Like just one advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important to understand like where you want to be in the spe in the spectrum because like whether you know you want to be doing more like you know engineering coding, whether you want to be doing more maths related things, and or whether you want to be doing both. And based on where you are in this spectrum, I think it's clear what kind of jobs to target. So for example, if you want to do like real engineering, there are a lot of like machine learning engineering jobs. If you want to do more you know, maths, you can go into research. If you want to do more like business oriented things. It's usually more interested to like target the data scientist positions. So I think, yeah, there's really this spectrum of like whether you want to do math, engineering, business. And, and yeah, based on that, it's clear what jobs to, to target. So one last question. I mentioned we know each other for quite a long time. You've been my flatmate for like five years. So you're also a very good friend. So one last question is, how do you do? I mean, you're still quite young, you're doing so many things, you're doing your PhD on top of that, doing research at Facebook AI. So how do you do? What's your secret to do well? <laughs> yeah, I think time management is, is very important there. Actually, in my, in my early years, of, so yeah, in my first year of the PhD, I, I maybe miscalculated how to handle my, my time. And so I, I overworked like, quite a bit. And the problem is that you can very quickly like burn out if, if you work too hard. So I think it's very important to actually be very organized in like sort of what kind of projects you want to be involved in and, and to set some clear goals and to not get over, overwhelmed. So I think that's, that, that's, that's super important. And so that's something that I really wasn't doing in, in the early days of my PhD. I was like just trying to be all over the place, take as many projects as possible, leading sometimes three projects while like you're entering a PhD, you're, you're supposed to sort of lead one project at a, at a time. And actually, it was leading to some pretty complicated situations where sometimes I had to work like 20 plus hours a day for like a few weeks. And, and you, you don't want to be in this situation. Actually, at some, at some point, it's just too much. So I feel it's really important to actually be, be, be very realistic about the sort of goals you want to achieve and to, to plan, plan ahead. All right. Wish you good luck, Sam. Thanks a lot for this. It was very interesting to have your view on PhD, Facebook AI and AI and ethics. And yeah, have a good evening and hope to see you soon. Thanks a lot, Neil. It was really cool.